Hello, this is Lisa Pierce, Executive Editor of Packaging Digest, with another episode of Packaging Possibilities, a podcast that reveals what's new and what's next for packaging executives and engineers, designers, and developers. In this episode, I'm doing an exit interview with Rich Hollander, who has just retired from the global pharmaceutical giant Pfizer after a successful 32-year career in various roles as a uh, packaging executive. His last title was Vice President of Sterile Injectable Technology, where he was kept quite busy there these last couple of years in helping the company produce its COVID-19 vaccine. Before he gets too comfortable in that hammock reading a good book or on the uh, sailboat uh, seeing new lands or whatever retirement has in store for him, I wanted to capture his insights on packaging in general and pharmaceutical packaging specifically, of course. Rich, hello, hello. So glad you could talk with us today. Happy to do so, Lisa. Thanks. It's definitely our pleasure. So on LinkedIn, I saw the news that you were retiring from Pfizer, but you say that you are semi-retired. First, congratulations on that. But what does semi-retired mean? That means I have to sort it out, quite frankly. So let let me start with a couple of things, because technically I am retired. Um, It's been a very long journey, uh, 32 years, but it goes quick, right? Yes, Um, it does. But I I absolutely want to acknowledge a few things that really speaks to what retirement means for me. Okay. Um, I came to Pfizer in 1990 and I had, I didn't even know how to spell the word Pfizer, the name Pfizer. I didn't know what the road was that I was hopping onto. I didn't know where it would take me. I just took this job with this company called Pfizer. Um, But it was the early nineties and Pfizer was launching a bunch of really cool new products, which of course meant growth. And what growth means is opportunity for people that want to work hard, um, persist, and just stay motivated. Opportunities are everywhere with growth in a company. My father gave me some advice um, and he said, do whatever you can to stay with this company because the road that you're on will take you to really good places. And he was saying it from a place of, you know, retirement eligibility. And if you stay with a company long enough, and granted, this was 32 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you would be able to retire, um, have, you know, provide for your family. You'd be able to have, you know, a reasonable health plan and all of the things that many people aspire to, to actually have. So, you know, I made the uh, made the choice consciously over those years to stick it on this road with Pfizer. And, you know, it's one thing to say you want to stay with a company. It's another thing to um, grow with a company, both professionally and personally. And, you know, in my journey, in my career, let's just highlight, you know, in 1992, when um, a very wise man at Pfizer asked me to enter the packaging field, um, an area that I knew nothing about. Um, you know, what I quickly realized was that when you work in such an, a large organization and you have access to experts in the industry, you know, the and you have a quest for knowledge and you're willing to ask questions to people who are willing to share and answer, it's it's an accelerant for 
learning professionally, right? Yes, and it definitely is. The one thing that I reflect on was when I was transitioning into the role, the person that I was replacing, who was um, ironically retiring, um, gave me one piece of wisdom. He said, join the Institute of Packaging Professionals Drug and Pharmaceutical Packaging Committee. And this is not a plug for the group um, as much as it is a big thank you um, for what they've done for me. Early in my career, I realized these guys had tons of experience and knowledge. There wasn't a problem they hadn't solved before that I was going to run into. And, you know, I knew this person was really good at this type of packaging issue. This type of this person was really good at this type of packaging issue. And I started leveraging it to the point where I got um, a lot of knowledge in me in a very short period of time. And I was in turn able to contribute back both within my company and within in the industry. And when you think about reflecting on a career, that gives it the longevity, right? That that gives you the inspiration towards an aspiration. And, you know, I have a ton of people to thank along the way. The DPPC is certainly one of them. You know, all of the people at Pfizer that I've worked with, uh, both above site, at our sites, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, in the early 90s and you were a setup mechanic helping me understand why this package didn't run properly. And I just realized, oh my gosh, if we just change the tuck flap radius just a hair, um, we'll get rid of that jam for you, no problem. All of that kind of knowledge and wisdom that I accumulated over the years came from people. Um, and I'm very appreciative of that because that's really what propelled me all the way through to retirement, okay? So that's the reflection on kind of what retirement means for me. And I'm very, very gracious. But you asked about, you know, what semi-retired really means, right? <laughs> yes. So um, the first thing it means, um, like, so I just, I'm only in week number two. So I just retired on July 1st um, and I haven't yet dialed the process in. So far, what I can tell you is I'm able to define my schedule every day, right? Um, so Lisa, like we talked earlier, um, you know, I'm doing this interview with you. Next thing I'm Let's go work on my boat so I can go fishing tomorrow. I got to get the boat, the engine working again. So, um, and I think a lot of people are aware that um, I have two young boys, 11 and 14 years old. One's entering middle school, one to, one's entering high school. And I'm already finding myself spending a lot more quality time with them. Even, even if it's just in the mornings before they're going to camp, I can take them to camp. I can pick them up from camp. I can go for a family swim after camp with them because they have no meetings during the day, right? Oh, that's uh, fantastic. So that that is just a privilege, right? Yes. Um, I, I plan on catching a lot of fish this summer. Um, we're doing okay so far. Um, I'm hopping on a Peloton in pretty much four days a week right now. So I don't think I'm ever going to run marathons again, but I'm going to get my body back in shape. Um, you know, like everybody, there's a million house projects to work on that are now starting to um, come into my um, coming from the peripheral vision to my primary vision because I have the time to start focusing on them. Sure. And then like the semi-retired part. Right. Um, so I know I'm not done working. I know there's still plenty of fuel in my tank. Um, so what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? You know, the only thing I know for sure is I'm going to work for myself. Um, and you know, put myself out there, um, advise, consult, help companies get out of trouble when they're in them, um, whatever I can do. Um, but it'll be different, right? Because it's, you know, your schedule, what you choose to do, and you have complete control of your destiny. Like I said, um, I don't know what it really means, uh, but we'll see pretty much in September, I think, when it starts to cool off here on Cape Cod, the fish start heading south, the kids need to go back to school, and normalcy kind of hits me in the head really hard. 
Sure, and that uh, fits perfectly with on your schedule, um, definitely. Uh, it'll be exciting to see what comes up with that because, um, Rich, you're now in the position to be that guy that you used to rely on when you were first starting out and coming up through the ranks. So you're the one now who's got the 32 years of experience and knowledge to then share with whoever um, you know needs it. You know so, what? I, I, it does excite me um, to be able to give back. Number one, um, you know my um, my background is industrial engineering. Um, I like to help fix things. I like problems that need to be solved. Um, so if some of the knowledge that I've been gifted with through these 32 years is going to help others, then absolutely I want to be sharing it. Oh, fantastic. Um, Rich, uh, during your career, though, can you think back and, and tell us a few things that maybe stand out as, you know, the most important things you feel that you've done in your career? And then why did those stand out for you? So let me start by saying it. It was never me. Um, I might have been an idea guy. I might have been the one stirring the drink, um, but it was a definite we thing. I've always been surrounded by experts, people much smarter than me, um, people that will um, course correct me, um, tap me on the shoulder and say, look over there. Um, so let me just say, this is not what Rich Hollander did. This is what the village has done. Um, and, you know, Noted. so, with that kind of learning, I started realizing, you know, when it comes to packaging and regulatory guidance, there's not a lot out there. Um, this was the mid 90s, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. um, that kind of led into this pharma packaging work group um, getting together, which was really all of my, you know, senior peers that I talked about from the DPPC. Um, and positioning ourselves to help shape regulatory policy with the agencies uh, directly through this packaging technical committee that the agency had, had. And, you know, lots of meetings, lots of years. But in 1999, two packaging guidances were issued, um, one that made it very clear what information was required to be submitted in a registration package. The second um, was how to approach uh, post-approval changes from a regulatory perspective. So we influenced the shaping of both of those guidances. And probably one of my prouder moments was uh, when the agency asked me personally as chair of the pharma packaging work group to help roll out guidances to the industry and participate in workshops to train industry how to interpret um, what they were putting out there. So that was really, really cool. All good, win-win. Definitely win-win. And you know, Rich, one of the things that I like about that is that it was a value add for your company. So you were doing what you were paid to do, but it also um, was the advantage of the entire industry, as you say. So thank you, Lisa. I think I, I often forget that, you know, when I get inspired to lead outside of Pfizer, and there's a couple of other examples I'll go through, it's really because it's the only way I can make my job easier within Pfizer, right? Um, because True. When you're What's in, in it for me? <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually very selfish. It comes across as, well, you know, Rich Hollander is this guy who, you know, influences agencies or, you know, the work that we I can talk about in a minute, I'll talk about the work that we did with partnering with GS1 
uh, to make the right impact on serialization, you know, 2D barcodes versus RFID and the and the um, application identifiers that we use today every day on every one of our products. Um, but it's really about how do I, you know, I say make my job easier, but really what I'm trying to do is enable change in a space where regulations weren't well-defined or minimize spend um, on capital because we don't have industry standards. And without industry standards, things can run amok. And when you work for a very large multinational company like I do, or I have, I should say, it can get very expensive when you don't have standards, global standards in place to follow. So at least when it came to you know packaging regulations, we were able to make a pretty good inroad um, here in the U.S. And I think, um, you know, nowadays, I think we're fairly consistent with how we approach packaging changes. Excellent. So you set a, uh, a procedure for making industry changes, which didn't exist before. Um, kudos to you for doing that. Before we hear more from Rich about some other highlights from his career, as well as his advice for the packaging industry moving forward, let's take a short break for a special message. Lisa Pierce here with Packaging Digest. If you are enjoying this podcast, I've got good news for you. There are more episodes with insights from other packaging executives at brand owner companies, including Tuna Giant, Bumblebee Foods, Food and Confections Leader, Mars, alcohol beverage manufacturer, Absolute, and snack king, Frito-Lay. Find these and other conversations at packagingdigest.com slash packaging hyphen possibilities hyphen podcast. Now back to our current episode to learn more. So you said you had a couple other examples, like what? Um, so, you know, we launched a lot of new products, um, while I was some of which I covered as a, uh, a media yeah. journalist. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, in the, in the early nineties, we, we called it, um, you know, we had, I think five or six blockbuster products that we introduced all solid dosage forms. Um, and then in the late nineties, of course, we had Viagra, which, you know, made Pfizer a household name. Um, but you know, one thing about the Viagra launch, right, was interesting for many, many different reasons, right? Um, novel therapeutic area. Nobody's really talked about it before. So we did a lot of really cool things. Probably the the thing that I'm most proud of in that um, situation was teamwork. All of that kind of stuff came together really, really well with Viagra and became, you know, our benchmark for how we approach new product launches. And, you know, the new standard was set, if you will, in terms of expectations. And then, you know, some cool stuff happened with Viagra, right? We got introduced to the need to use anti-counterfeiting technologies in our products, on our packaging. We learned a lot over the next three or four years. Um, yes, and now, there were a lot of new technologies that were just emerging at that point, too. New technologies swiped from other industries, reapplied into our industry, which was really, really cool. So I know um, a couple of the things that I remember that you and I worked on um, as for articles um, in the past were um, the Listerine strips, which was a totally new product format 
that um, created a lot of challenges on the packaging design and production side of things, but also was, um, you know, again, a way of you forging new ground um, in that. And then the whole just growth of unit dose, those are the two things that um, really stand out for me. Any any comments on those? So, you know, the, the Listerine pocket packs um, yes. was a very novel dosage form um, with a very novel container closure system. And the fortunate thing about that is it had tremendous volume behind it for a single product, right? So you don't often have that kind of situation where you've got a novel technology that immediately has high volume behind it. It, it. It's good because it helps you establish a platform for how are you going to you know, get the strips into little packets, um, seal, label those little packs, and then put them in bigger blister packs, right? Um, but it's all novel. Uh, so nothing was easy on that. And I give, you know, this was our site in Littles, Pennsylvania, um, and another one in Parsippany um, that we're doing the lion's share of all of that operational work. It was no easy task, um, but they did incredibly well. What strikes me about that from what I remember, Rich, is um, you started with the one packaging line and, as you say, had a lot of um, innovations and in, in just how do we do this, figuring out how do we do this since it was all new. But then, um, like I say, what really struck me about it is when talking with you, as you were setting up your second line, instead of just replicating it, which would have gotten you, you know, double the production as fast as possible. You guys, again, you know, the team looked at it and said, what could we do better? You were always looking at, yeah, this is how we did it, but can it still be improved? Not can it still be improved. Um, kind of like a secret is you don't ask the can question, you ask the how question, how can this be improved? Yeah, sometimes it falls into your lap, though, to be honest with you, Lisa. Um, you know you can do better just by watching it. Right? <laughs> you look at the number of micro stops, you look at your runtime efficiencies, um, and you say, hmm, what's wrong with this overall design? Um, and then just acknowledge it and say, we're going to do better on the next one. Mm -hmm. Great. What about um, the unit dose? So unit dose is an interesting one for me. Unit dose packaging, um, you know, and let's frame it right. So... For solid dosage forms, unit dose packaging usually means a blister card that's, you know, perforated two by five, um, 10 of those in a box, and we sell it to hospitals, right? So um, it's not a high volume, um, you know, operation in any of our sites, but it's something that we produce specifically for institutional use. Um, and there was a gap. Um, the gap is that you know hospitals around the world are very focused on patient safety and yet the number one issue that exists in hospitals is dispensing errors right so they're getting their technologies we all acknowledge dispensing is a problem but we've got these little tiny blister packs that are usually printed one color black on top of white or sometimes black on top of you know aluminum foil. Um, and it's really hard to visually see a difference between any of these medicines. So the ask started to surface um, by the FDA to consider putting little barcodes on these things to help you know um, hospitals scan. And I remember very well, there was a lot of pushback from industry not wanting to do it. Um, because it's relatively low volume. We're going to have to make bigger blister packs. We're going to have inefficiencies that are, 
you know, going to be innate to doing this because now we've, we've got to print product identification, maybe lot number and expiration date on the back of every single cavity. And I didn't know how to do it. Um, nobody well, really. nobody at that point was printing online, on the packaging line, variable information in a, you know, human and automated readable mode. So that, again, was, you know, trail trailblazing. Well, and I remember, Rich, at the time, you were the one who taught me but the impetus behind this was the um, the five rights of medication administration to try to minimize or even eliminate um, errors, dispensing errors that you uh, that you mentioned. So uh, refresh my memory. It's the right patient, the uh, right, right dose, the right, right drug, right product, right dose, right time. Uh, you, you're you're really testing me now. It's been a while. Right, since I, right uh, route, right route. Fiber of administration. That was it. Yep. So that's and, the five of them. And you know, it, I was actually very inspired. I witnessed a, I personally witnessed a dispensing error in a hospital that was caught um, by accident by me um, because I was loosely paying attention. I'm like, that's not the drug that she told me she was getting. So it was averted, right? But I saw how easy it was, and it was for um, an IV bag. Um, not necessarily a blister pack. So it was easier to see that it was the wrong thing. What happened was, since I didn't know the first thing about barcoding, um, well, I'm exaggerating a little bit, um, I went to GS1. They introduced me to a new barcode symbology that they were uh, introducing called, at, at the time it was called the RSS, Reduced Space Symbology Composite Barcode, now it's known as the Data Bar which was a linear barcode that worked almost like a two-dimensional barcode. We had to put linear barcodes on because nobody had 2D scanners out back in the late 90s, early 2000s, so we had to stick with linear. Um, anyway, through all of the work and understanding that GS1 provided us with and with our site cooperation where we launched this on this old clunky machine, we learned how to print these little tiny barcodes on the existing footprint of the cards that we had with very high quality, such that when the hospitals would receive these barcodes, they would scan right first time every time. So really proud of that whole thing. Great. Well, um, so many good things, and I know you've got a ton other stories, but um, I wanted to ask, let's look ahead just a little bit. Rich, really want to hear from you on what important changes that you think still need to happen either in, in packaging or in general, or, um, you know, pharmaceutical packaging, and then um, how can they happen? So I, I'd say two two main areas. The first one is, you know, the science of packaging. I think we all need to continue to work with the health authorities around the world to understand the science of packaging, material science, performance aspects of that, so that regulatory pathways can continue to uh, um, develop and accelerate in terms of enabling innovation, new technologies, alternate materials. Um, because what has happened uh, because of our clunky regulatory pathways, you know, quite frankly, we still make stoppers the way we made them 75 years ago. You know, vulcanization, um, lots of excipients thrown into a pot, mixed, extruded, or calendared, extruded, um, you know, pressed into stoppers. There's a reason it's still that way. Um, part of it is we're locked in from a stability perspective on all those sp specific excipients. 
part of it is people don't really understand the process and what it the risk assess it to really understand the impact to our products. So as a result, we don't do anything and everything requires full stability in a prior approval supplement, right? So, or submission rather. So I think if we can continue the charge to help deepen um, the understanding of, on, of the regulators and how components are made, what we use to make them so that they can help us embrace new technologies. It could be injection molded stoppers. It could be new formulations for glass that don't scratch, crack, and break, right? That's mm-hmm. cool yes. stuff. But if we're handcuffed by, you know, regulatory positions that would require stability on every single product, um, it, it you know, it's going to be a slow march towards the goal line, right? So that's one area um, that we just, as an industry, we need to keep that drive alive. Rich, if I could just mention here um, regarding stability, the um, there is a group on the medical device side of things that is working on streamlining the stability testing processes for um, medical device packaging. And that also is the Medical Device Packaging Technical Committee of the IOPP, uh, Institute of Packaging Professionals. So as you were saying earlier, uh, there's cross-fertilization. You took uh, technology from one market and applied it to to your market. There um, might be some uh, synergy there from the medical device folks. You know, that's a great point. You know, in recent years, Pfizer you know, has has created a very strong medical device. We call it a combination product team. Um, Drug device development, right? Uh, well, we have that in R&D, but in manufacturing, we also have a very strong combination products team that handles all of our, they actually manage, you know, um, our design history files. They're, they are the the authors of them. They, they take ownership of the design history file when the product gets approved. Um, okay. So clearly they're managing all of the post-approval changes that go on. But I have noticed that you know we certainly seem to be hiring a lot of biomedical engineers into this space um, and they're brilliant quite frankly but the opportunity for sure is cross-fertilization between what we've traditionally called the package engineer that some are very good at performance some are very good at materials characterization material science piece of it um, but blurring the lines between those two um, fields um, and taking you know the best from both to influence regulatory understanding would be really that's that's something that I think the whole industry should figure out how to do. Okay, so uh, maybe in September, someone who might have some time on his hands could help facilitate that. <laughs> okay, so um, important changes that you you think still need to happen, though, Rich. So another one that I really would like to see, you know, it's it's not my area of expertise, but I'm going to say I've been victimized by it throughout my career. It's the lead times associated with equipment. You know, they're ridiculous. <laughs> it's like 12 to 8. So, you know, if if, there, if an equipment lead time has 12 to 18 months before it's delivered, okay, and typically, you know, the pharma manufacturer is 12 months late in recognizing the need for the new equipment, we've got a, it's it's a mess, right? So if there was an opportunity to get our OEMs, could be blister packaging equipment, bottle filling equipment, it could be, you know, fillers. Something new. Mm -hmm. Inspection, anything. To move from a kind of make-to-order business where they don't really do anything until they get our 30% down payment. Um, I'm exaggerating, of course. Um, But if we can get them to an assembled order 
or configure to order kind of business, I think, you know, number one, their sales are going to go up. Number two, our needs are going to be met that much faster and opportunities will open up that much easier because oftentimes when we're trying to implement a new technology, we're trying to get equipment to coincide with it, right? But if if the new technology, you know, container closure system or whatever is tied to a new piece of equipment that's going to take me 12 to 18 months, um, it kind of puts a damper on the new technology, right? Well, um, Rich, hasn't some of that been addressed in the, the uh, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've been seeing a lot of machinery manufacturers design modular systems so that they could almost do assemble to order. Hasn't that helped? It's starting to help. We're starting to see it. Inherently, those lead times are going to be shorter than, you know, designing and um, configuring from scratch, basically, which is what the old way of doing it is. But that's only in specific spaces. Am I seeing that? I'm not seeing it everywhere where it's modularized. Okay. I think maybe a little bit more on the secondary packaging side rather than on primary packaging because so much is dependent on what the product is. Exactly. And the volume, right? The the portfolio of products that are going to go on that line and things like that. But so, you know, so modular is a really good idea. But, you know, before you go, because modular is a design concept, if you will, right? If, you know, if an OEM is going to make 25 machines a year or 50 machines a year or 75 machines a year, right? We should have the right number of PLCs on stock. We should have the right number of motors on stock. We should have the right number of whatever the key consistent components are. They shouldn't have to be going back to the well every time um, because what happens is um, the supply chain issues that we're all facing these days just get exacerbated because you're kind of starting from scratch, right? So I know I'm exaggerating to make a point though, but I think if we can get those lead times, you know, for new equipment closer to six months than 18 months, industry is going to be a heck of a lot better off when it comes to adopting new technologies, new approaches to doing things. Okay. Well, it would be nice to see some movement in that area as well. And that will not just um, uh, benefit the pharmaceutical industry, but that would benefit the entire, any, any um, packaging line, production line um, at all. So um, this is wonderful. I love picking your brain. I knew this was going to be a great interview, uh, but I do want to ask, so what advice do you have for people who are maybe just entering the packaging field today? Ooh, boy, they're the ones that should be advising me, to be honest with you. They, um, you know, what I'm seeing coming out of schools these days is just absolute brilliant. You know, I agree. It's very clear. The way they teach the science is outstanding. I also think the way people are being educated in college today is with a whole bunch of different tools than I was had access to. You know, the example I used, I like to use is like, you know, as an engineer, you know, certain classes, you like certain classes you didn't like, like stats. I hated stats, right? And I think a lot of people kind of feel the same way. And I think it has to do with how it was taught and the fact that we're all using like TI-55s and things like that. And it was just a pain in the neck. Um, so we just like we got through it, right? What's a TI-55? Oh, like an old, I don't even know. Oh, an old the, calculator? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. So anyway, you know, when when I have a, a need to have something, you know, analyzed, traditionally I would have to call out the statistician, right? And then he feed it back to me and tell me if I was okay or not, and you know, use a whole bunch of terms that I 
quite frankly, had to ask, you know, what, what does it mean? Can you tell me, am I good or am I bad? Um, do I have more work to do, right? So I struggled in this space and I think a lot of us have, but you know, these kids come out of school today, like they they do the stats themselves as if it you know was cursive handwriting. They had to do it. It's not a problem. It's a tool in the toolbox when I need it, I use it as part of my problem solving and analytical toolkit, right? So um, it's that kind of stuff that I say makes them get through technical issues that much faster, right? So we always say we learn through technical issues, right? Um, you know, it's a school of hard knocks. But that's not necessarily fun, solving technical issues. The fun part is really innovation and, you know, looking forward and, you know, breaking through on new technologies. And you have to have time to be able to do that. So if you can use your toolkit effectively to get through those technical issues faster, you have that much more free time to go after the cool stuff, right, that um, you couldn't get to otherwise. What I say to, you know, these early career professionals entering the packaging field is use your toolkit as best you possibly are schooled and ask a lot of questions to a lot of people that have been around the block for a long time so that you can find where to apply your tools to make the biggest impact. One of the things that I always try to take advantage of when new people come into my um, sphere is <clears throat> to ask them as an outsider, because you're looking at things with fresh eyes and the advantage of fresh eyes is so powerful. I always ask them, what what should we be doing differently? Because sometimes they <clears throat> might have an idea that doesn't work, but at least it gets that thought process. You have to start thinking differently if you want to innovate. You, you really do. And surround yourself with like-minded people because you know, ideas need to be greenhouse to be effective, right? And then you're going to need that same village of people that help you greenhouse that idea to make it a reality. Okay, wonderful. So, um, Rich, let's uh, just finish quickly here with, um, so you're going to enjoy your summer, and then in the fall, you're going to be semi-working. Instead of semi-retired, I'm going to call it semi-working. So, um, how can people reach you in the fall? Yeah. So reach me on my email, rdhollander5 at gmail.com. I'm going to work on a better email, but for sure you can reach me there. I'm going to come up okay. with a more professional email at some point, but that's what I have right now. <laughs> okay. And what I'll do is um, with this podcast, we also do the transcript. So I'll make sure that the email is hyperlinked in the transcript. People Great. could um, definitely reach you from there. Rich, <clears throat> wonderful conversation with you. So good to talk with you. And thank you so much for doing a little bit of a brain dump um, before you head off on your boat. My pleasure, Lisa.